You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, strap yourself in. This is just astonishing. Bill Browder, founder CEO of Hermitage Capital Management and the author of Red Notice, a true story of high finance murder and one man's fight for justice, uh, has a new book out about what's been going on with the Russians and the Magnitsky Act that he helped to pass in order to get justice for his Russian attorney who was tortured and murdered uh, by the Russian government while in uh, their custody in prison. This is just really uh, astonishing stuff. I I read all of Red Notice. Uh, It it was like a spy novel. You plow right through it on a weekend. And then I did the same thing with Freezing Water, which is what's taken place in the five years since Red Notice came out. So I felt like I knew everything he was going to say. And even still, he astonished me. I, I, I spoke to him for nearly two hours most of the time, my jaw was on the desk. I, I, I just was shocked at how um, just barbaric and you can't even call it corrupt. It's just next level illegality that seems to take place in, in Russia. Browder describes that nation as a country that doesn't have laws. It's the Wild West. And it is, a, as he describes it, a kleptocracy and a fascist state, which doesn't sound like it's the sort of place where anybody would want to live. Uh, this is not just bad, it's bad and getting worse. Uh, and he describes both uh, the invasion of Ukraine as a giant distraction um, by Putin against people who would challenge his rule. Really, just, uh, I don't even know what to say, An, a, a fascinating shocking, horrifying conversation. Even if you read both of Browder's books, you will find something to be amazed at. Uh, with no further ado, my conversation with Bill Browder. So so let's start out just with a little bit about your, your background. You have a BA in economics from Chicago, an MBA from Stanford. You begin in Solomon Brothers uh, in the 1990s, early in your career, and you kind of successfully stumble into some privatization uh, of uh, government entities in Poland while you're at Solomon. T- tell us a little bit about that early experience. Well, I should just back up a, a one step further, which is um, a, a little bit on my family background, which is what got me interested in all this Eastern European stuff. 
<clears throat> my grandfather um, was was an American communist who was head of the American Communist Party from 1932 to 1945. And so I, in my teenage and I decided to become a catalyst. <laughs> I went to Stanford Business School, as you mentioned. And I finished business school in 1989, the year the Berlin Wall came down. And I thought to myself, if my grandfather was the biggest communist in America and the Berlin Wall has come down, I'm going to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And so <clears throat> I ended up in London on the East European desk of Solomon Brothers. And, um, and this was at the, right around the time that, that all the countries of um, uh, Eastern Europe were privatizing. And um, my, my very first experience was actually uh, before I joined Solomon Brothers. Um, I had an, another job at the Boston Consulting Group. They sent me out to Poland in, um, uh, to work on a uh, failing Polish bus factory. And I noticed my interpreter had a, um, uh, a newspaper under his arms with a bunch of financial figures I asked him what those were, and he said, these are the very first Polish privatizations. And I was, I was kind of intrigued, and so I said, can we discuss it? And we, he laid it out on a conference table, and I said, what's this number? And he said, this is the number of shares outstanding of this one company that's being privatized. And, and I said, what's this number? He said, the share price. I multiplied the two numbers together, and that got you to a market cap of this company of $80 million. And then I said, what's this number down here? And he said, this is um, last year's earnings. I said, no, that couldn't be right. I said, so can you just retranslate it? And he said, last year's earnings. And that number was uh, $160 million. So, so here's a company that's valued at $80 million. The, the uh, previous year's earnings were $160 million. So it's trading at one half, a PE of one half. <laughs> and, 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 uh, and I thought, well, isn't this what I went to, to business school for to like, invest in this kind of stuff. And I had a total life savings at the time of $2,000. And I converted my total life savings of $2,000 into Polish Zloty, which is their currency, went down with my translator to the post office and subscribed to the very first privatization in Poland. And um, over the course of the next 12 months, it went up 10 times. That's so my 2000 turned into 20000 and And there's a certain feeling that you get uh, if you make 10 times your money, it's like yeah. a, like the f financial equivalent of crack cocaine. <laughs> and I just wanted to repeat the experience. And so I now knew what I wanted to do with my life. I didn't want to be a consultant. I wanted to be investing in these privatizations in Eastern Europe. And, and that's what led me uh, eventually to Solomon Brothers. And I was working on their proprietary trading desk. And that's when I discovered Russia. Yeah, the story in the book is quite fascinating how really Solomon Brothers is a shark tank. They throw everybody in the pool. You either sink or swim. And you kind of stumbled into Russia by accident. They were not especially supportive uh, until you found one champion who, who managed to get you a nice pool of capital invest. Tell us how that, that progressed. Well, what happened was my very first assignment at Solomon Brothers um, was to advise the, um, the management of a, of a fishing fleet in Murmansk on their privatization. And so I um, uh, fly up to Murmansk, which is 200 miles north of the Arctic Circle, it's the most farthest north place in the world. I go up there, and the uh, head of the fishing fleet meets me at the airport. He takes me down to the docks, and he shows me one of their ships. And the ship was like 400 feet long. It was on five stories. On the top story, they collect them. They have the nets where they caught the fish, and they separate them, and they work their way down. 
And eventually at the bottom story of the, of the boat, they have canning machines. And so it wasn't just a fishing com- a boat. It was an ocean-going factory, very impressive. And I asked him, how much does one of these things cost? And he said, $20 million new. How many do you have in your fleet? A hundred. So I did the math, 20 million times a hundred gets you to $2 billion of the ships. I said, what's the average age of your fleet? He said, seven years. So I don't know much about shipping or fishing or anything, but I figure that makes it maybe half depreciated. So a billion dollars for the ships. And these guys had hired me, the management of this trawler fleet, to advise them on whether the management should exercise their legitimate right under the privatization program of Russia to buy 51%. And so I said, at what price is government selling you 51%? And he said, $2.5 million. <laughs> so let me just repeat the math. A billion dollars of the ships for two, 51% for $2.5 million. And that's when I realized that, that something really crazy was going on in Russia. And if, and if the situation in Poland had gotten my juices flowing, my God, this is even crazier. And so then I went to Moscow. I, thought, I, I said to myself, is this just something some weird anomaly with the fishing industry, or is this something going on more widespread? And I, I, I went to Moscow, and I, I, uh, as I was going through the airport in Moscow, they, they were selling a, a, a little English-language yellow-page directory. And so I, um, I kind of didn't know anyone in Russia. I didn't speak the language. And so I bought this English-language yellow-page directory, and I just started cold-calling people who might be able to explain to me what was going on. And, I, and over the course of a week, I had about 40 meetings. I met with all different types of people, and I was able to figure out what was going on more widespread. And this was the most incredible thing I've ever seen in my, my professional life. But basically, they, the, in order to go from communism to capitalism, the Russian government had given every citizen in the country a, a thing called a voucher, a physical certificate called voucher. And at the time, there's about 150 million people in the country, and these vouchers were freely tradable. So you could, you could buy them, you could sell them, you could burn them, you could trade them, you could do anything you wanted with them. And so the vouchers developed a sort of secondary market, and they traded for about $20 each. And so, again, I went through the simple math. There's 150 million vouchers times $20 gets you $3 billion of vouchers in circulation. And these $3 billion of vouchers in circulation were uh, exchangeable for 30% of the share capital of all Russian companies, which meant that the market cap of the entire country of Russia, everything, every every asset in the country was $10 billion. This is a country with... 35% 35% of the world's natural gas, 10% of the world's oil, 10% of the world's aluminum, steel, fertilizer, car companies, telephone companies, electricity companies, banks, etc. The entire country, $10 billion. At the time, you couldn't buy a mid-sized Oklahoma oil company for $10 billion. And here you could buy the whole country of Russia. So I rushed back to Solomon and I said, guys, we've got to stop doing everything else we're doing and we've got to invest in Russia. They're like literally giving money away for free. And... Um, and the moment I met, mentioned Russia, people like just immediately just switched off. Right. And I wasn't very good. At, I wasn't very good at, at uh, politics inside an organization. So if one person said no, I just went to the next person. I just wide-eyed and crazy said, "We got to stop doing everything and invest in Russia." And by the time I was done, I'd completely burned my reputation with everybody in the whole company. <laughs> Even the young guys who I was hanging out with stopped inviting me to lunches and drinks because nobody wanted to be seen with that crazy guy who was obsessed with investing in Russia. And, and Solomon was a place where if you didn't earn five times what they were paying you within a year, you were fired. And I wasn't yeah. earning anywhere near five times anything. And um, I was going to be fired. So not only was I not going to be able to invest in all this great stuff in Russia, I wasn't going to be able to pay my rent. And so uh, I was just sitting there just totally demoralized. And one day my phone rang, and it was the most, one of the most senior guys in the New York office of Solomon Brothers. I was in London. 
And he said, I, I hear you might be having some career troubles, but you've got something interesting to say about Russia. Can you come over and explain to me what's going on? And so I spent like a couple days all night putting together the best PowerPoint presentation I could come up with explaining how cheap everything was in Russia. I go over to Solomon. I um, sit down with this guy. I take him through the presentation, and he, he's, he's not a very um, uh, sort of friendly or, or communicative guy, and he, he sort of sits, stares blankly at me as I'm going through this presentation, and halfway through the presentation, he just gets up and leaves. And I thought to myself, I've like blown my chance <laughs> at saving my career. And, um, and I'm sitting there tapping my foot trying to figure out how I'm going to retrieve this meeting when he comes back. He's gone for 10 minutes, 20, 30, 40. He comes back like 52 minutes later, and I'm about to blurt something out to try to save the meeting. But before I have a chance to say anything, he said, I just, uh, those slides you showed me are the single most impressive thing I've ever seen in my investment career. Wow. I've just gone to the risk management committee. I've got you $25 million to invest in Russia. I want you to stop doing everything else you're doing and get over there and get this money invested. This is unbelievable. And that's what, uh, that's, that's what set me off on my career. I'm investing in Russia. Wow, amazing, amazing story. Um, so, so now you set up this fund, and it does really well. And you circle back to Sally and say, "Hey, let's really expand this." And suddenly, everybody wants a piece of you. Tell us a little bit about that. So, so I go in. And, so this guy sends me out to Russia. I invest the twenty-five million. And for a while, it's doing nothing. It's just sitting there, totally tiny little illiquid market. Nobody knows anything about it. It's just sort of sitting there. And I, I invest this money in, in like the fall and, and going into like December of 1993. And then 1994, The Economist uh, magazine in England writes an article called Sale of the Century, in which they describe the same math that I've just shared with you. And all of a sudden, um, it's in the, now it's in black and white in ink, um, you know, all sorts of people are reading it. And all of a sudden, about 20 serious, like, major Western investors, hedge fund managers, billionaires, proprietary trading desks, all say, all in unison say, wow, I, how, how come I didn't know? Why didn't I know about this? We got to get involved. And so, you know, when you take 20 huge investors and you try to go into a tiny, illiquid, almost untraded market and all at once try to buy it, what happens? The share price goes up. And so over in, in the course of a couple of weeks after this Economist article, the, the Russian stock market goes up 500%. And our $25 million turns into $125 million. Wow. And I should point out that this is back in the days when $100 million profit was real money. <laughs> right. And so, 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 so all of a sudden, I go from a total zero to like a hero on the trading floor. And all, all those guys who had stopped inviting me to lunches and drinks were all camped out around my desk when I arrived in the morning, all just desperate for tips on how they could make five times their money on the, uh, on the Russian stock market. And then all of a sudden, some of the older fellows started coming around to my desk. And, and old at Solomon was like 40 years. You, know, you couldn't survive past 40 without having a heart attack or something like that at Solomon. So 40 was like the maximum age. But you know, I was in my late 20s. So these older guys would come around. And, and Solomon is a very disrespectful place. And people were not very nice to each other, but they'd come by very, and very deferentially saying, you know, excuse me, Mr. Browder, uh, I know you're very busy, but is there any chance I could convince you to come and spend a few minutes to brief my client, uh, Mr. Soros? He would be so <laughs> grateful for just a tiny bit of your time. Um, another, another guy came by, you know, uh, S 
Sir John Templeton, the, the founder of Templeton, would just he's, he'd be so appreciative if you could just be with him for a little bit of your time. And I was getting these invitations to like the, the royalty of Wall Street. Everybody wanted to meet me because like, nobody knew anything about investing in Russia. And here is this one guy and who knew in, in the land of the blind, the one eyed man is king. And so I went on this world tour of, of, of the royalty of Wall Street, and, and they were much smarter than my colleagues at Solomon. And within moments when I showed them the, the data, they were saying, this is unbelievable. Can we give you some money to manage? And right. I said, well, I don't know. At the moment, we're just doing this for ourselves. But, but let me go back to the bosses and, and see what, what I, can, I can do for you. And um, so I go back to the head of the trading floor in London, and I say, you know, I was just with George Soros, and he wants to uh, give us some money to manage. What do you think? And the, and the guy says, I think that's a brilliant idea. Let's form a task force to study it. And um, I said, okay. So the first task force meeting was a week later. I show up in this room, and there's like 40 people in this room, like uh, 35 of them I've never seen in my life before. There was the, the vice chairman of the company, the senior managing directors, managing directors, senior directors, directors, vice presidents. And me, I was the lowest ranking guy in the whole room. And within moments of the meeting starting, a fight broke out among all these different people about which who is going to get the economic credit for the business. And, and investment bankers have an unbelievable skill and capacity for making plausible arguments for why they deserve money that they don't deserve. <laughs> and, and, and these people were just, I, I was watching it like, it was like multidimensional tennis. It was like that asset management group had made an argument and then the investment bank said, well, he worked here. And then the emerging markets, people said, what about us? And, and, and it was going on and on and on. And I didn't know who was going to win this argument, but I was a hundred percent sure of who wasn't going to get any economic credit for the business. And that was going to be me. And so I, um, after three days of like not being able to sleep, I, I, I walked into the head of the trading floor. I gave him my uh, security badge and I said, I'm quitting. I'm going to start my own fund. And I, went, I moved to Moscow, this was uh, early 1996, and set up what, what was, uh, became the Hermitage Fund. Uh, he told me, you're never going to succeed, but um, off I went. And I, and I ended up getting, I went back to one of those guys from, from those meetings that I went to on Wall Street. It was a guy, it was a guy named Edmund Safra, who was the uh, owner of Republic National Bank of New York. And uh, he was one of the largest and most successful private bankers in the world. He gave me $25 million to invest. We started the fund. And it, it just went like unbelievably up within moments of starting. Amazing. Really quite amazing. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at cuttereconomicforum.com. So it's a fascinating story, but it raises so many interesting questions, starting with you know, the companies you're investing in in Russia. Are these all formally state-owned companies, sort of the way things are operating in China today? Um, did they still retain any sort of state ownership? And, and, and who were the private owners of these farms? And so, so um, what, what would happen is, in most cases, the companies became completely privatized. Um, and, and the people who owned them, and, the, and these are big companies, and, you, and you've heard of these companies, Luke Oil, uh, Sparebank, Gazprom, um, good Nefigas. These are companies Giants. that anyone who trades r- r- Russian stocks would know the names of these companies. Um, big state company, big formerly state companies. Most of them were fully privatized, and the people who became the majority shareholders were these people who we now know as the oligarchs. A couple of them, like Gazprom and Spearbank, remained um, partially state-owned, or in some cases, majority state-owned. But the shares, the, the you know, forty-nine percent would trade on the stock market. Um, but the big problem that we discovered, and and um, and this this was one of the reasons everything was so cheap, was that you you might have owned um, a share of a Russian company, but you didn't really have a share of anything because the oligarchs, or in some cases the corrupt managers, were basically stealing all the money out the back door. There was you, you might have had a share of a company, you'd had no share of the economics because they were just literally stealing billions in every possible way you can imagine. The, 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 the kind of corruption that, that, that we got to see in, with our own eyes was just mind-boggling. It was the biggest theft in the history of the world was being done out of these companies. And these companies were generating you know, tens of billions of dollars of profit. But if you looked at the um, financials, they were non-profit. <laughs> and, and so, <laughs> so I, it, it presented a terrible dilemma for me because you know, I, I'd gone out to the world and, and convinced all sorts of famous people to come and invest with me. I, I showed them all these graphs and charts about how cheap everything was. And it was on paper, but it wasn't in reality because these guys were just stealing all the money out the back door. And it was, and it created a real problem. And, and it was also really infuriating. Like why would these, and it was mostly these oligarchs doing it. Why would these people feel, feel so entitled that they could do that and just at the expense of everybody else? And cheap. Cheap for a reason, right? So, so that raises exactly. a question. Russia is a unique place. Corruption is endemic. It's well known for a century. It's not the sort of geography that you really think of when you think of shareholder activism. What led you to that sort of approach in that sort of place? Well, so it, it was um, a, a combination of circumstances. So um, I started out with $25 million of Safra's money, and, and then it started going up and up and up. And this was, this was a, um, a hedge fund structure where you could put your money in at any point in time. And everybody said, oh, my God, this is unbelievable. So they started adding more and more money to the fund. And, and by um, um, 1998, I had more than a billion dollars invested in the Russian stock market, which was you know, this is a tiny little market. So a billion dollars was like the equivalent, oh was like the equivalent of, of fidelity in <laughs> Russia and uh, in terms of the, the size of, of assets. And then all of a sudden, and, and um, for anyone listening to this who's, who's you know, my age or near, 
1998 happened. This was the year that Russia defaulted and devalued their currency. And, and so, so they defaulted on the domestic bonds. The currency devalued by 75%. And, um, and, and my portfolio, um, which was uh, above a billion dollars, went down 90%. And so there I was Ouch. nursing a 90% loss. I lost $900 million of my client's money. And these are people that I'd gone around and tried to convince to, I had convinced to invest in Russia. I went, went around meeting all sorts of people all over the world. You know, and for every 20 people I would meet, 19 said, no, you're crazy. I'm not giving you any money. And one person would say yes. And that one person who's with me who, like, you know, who had given me their confidence, um, I, I'd lost 90% of their money. And I was just mortified. And I, I was totally, totally ashamed of myself that I had, you know, been so emphatic saying what a great opportunity this was. And I'd lost people so much money. And, and I, I just, you know, couldn't look at myself in the mirror unless I did something to try to try to get their money back. And so as I was trying to get their, so I was sitting with my last 10 cents on the dollar, the, the, the market had crashed and the oligarchs, and this was a particularly poignant moment in their lives that they had up until that time kind of behaved themselves, not as much. I mean, there was a lot of stealing going on before this, but, but after this crash, they realized that wall street, was closed for business for them. They could never borrow a penny on Wall Street. Nobody was ever going to touch them in any way, shape, or form. And that was the only thing sort of moderating their behavior at all. And so when, when they saw this, that, that, that nobody was returning their calls from Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley, who had been all, you know, whining and dining them a year before, they said to themselves, well, there's, if there's no incentive to behave and there's never been any disincentive against uh, misbehavior because there are no laws existing in Russia. We might as well steal everything that's not nailed down. And and right. and they went from stealing cash flow, which is what they'd stolen before, to stealing assets. And 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 they were asset stripping and and organizing huge dilutive share issues and embezzlement and all sorts of crazy stuff. And and so I was. They were going to try to steal the last ten cents on the dollar that I had right at the moment that I was that I had sort of vowed to try to get that money back. And so. I kind of felt like I was forced into this because I, I was I just couldn't uh, imagine just sort of dusting myself off and leaving and, you know, just leaving everybody in such a terrible state of my, among my clients. And so I, I said, okay, well, how, how do I stop them from stealing? And, and it's not like you could go to the regulator and say, you know, there's a stealing going on in my company. Could you please investigate? Because regulators don't regulate. And you couldn't go to the courts or the police or, or the parliament or anything. But the one thing I, the one thing I could do is go to the media. And, and so we started to do um, what, I, what is now known as stealing analysis of Russian companies, where we would go into these companies and we would do an analysis and, and of like how, they're stealing, how they were stealing, who was stealing, what they were stealing, where the money was going. And, and you might think that, that, well, how do you do a stealing analysis in a Russian company? And, and the answer is pretty interesting, which is that, that these companies in the country, it's just everything is total bureaucracy there. You can't even go to the bathroom without like putting your, you know, writing your name down on a form. And then those forms get filed with four different ministries and quadruplicate. And, and all that information about everything in the country was effectively for sale. You could basically buy a disc with information about everything. And, and so we started buying these discs with all this information and, and, and people also weren't very tight-lipped about it. Everybody was really upset that, um, that all the stealing was going on because only a very few people participated in it, but a lot of people got to see it with it, see it themselves. 
And so we, we started to put together these really detailed, um, you know, uh, summaries and analysis of, of how the stealing was happening. And, and the other big benefit that I had was that all the foreign correspondents all pretty much hung out at the same restaurants and bars that I did. And, and so I got to know all these guys and, and, and they loved me because here I was showing up with like work that would have taken them three months to do, which I just did myself with my team on showing like these massive thefts going on in these big, important Russian companies like Gazprom, Sparebank, and so on. And so I would, I would, um, I would do these naming and shaming campaigns and they would write up the stories of the wall street journal, the financial times, New York times, et cetera. And then the most interesting thing happened, which is that it was just at the same time that Vladimir Putin had come to power and, and um, Putin was fighting with the same guys I was fighting with when he came to power um, in the year 2000, he wasn't powerful like he is today. All these oligarchs had, had basically sort of informally usurped the power of the presidency and he was really keen on getting it back. And so, and I, and I should point out that I've never spoken or met Vladimir Putin. But um, uh, when I would put these exposés out there, it created this opportunity for him to go after his enemies. And there's, there's an expression, your enemy's enemy is your friend. And so he, he would, he, I would put out a big expose on Gazprom. And then all of a sudden he'd step in and he would fire the CEO of Gazprom using the state's shares. Or he would issue, you know, issue a presidential decree about spare bank or, or whatever. And this had an unbelievably um, positive effect on the value of my portfolio. And so if you, so basically remember I started with $25 million. It goes up to a billion. It goes down to nine to 100 million. And as a result of these naming and shaming campaigns, it goes from a hundred million to four and a half billion. And I became the largest foreign investor in the country. Wow. So, so shareholder activism is usually a pretty um, bare knuckles sort of um, strategy, and in a country like the United States or even the UK or Europe, there is the rule of law and respect for property rights and and regulation and uh, law enforcement. There's really not a whole lot of that in the U- in, in in Russia. At what point do you start to think? Hey, you know, I I could be really pissing off some pretty powerful and dangerous characters. Well, I, I was I, I, on one hand, I was um, uh, scared to death doing this, literally scared to death. Um, uh, and and it, it, it wasn't like I was doing this, you know, enthusiastically. I was doing this in reaction to, to the fact that I was they were going to try to take everything away from me. And 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 when I did it, I, I hired bodyguards. I had. Wow. In one particular um, fight that I had, I had literally 15 bodyguards. I had a when I would go from the office to home, I had my car with with three armed guys, and then there'd be three other cars: a lead car, a lag car, and a side car. And I get home, and we, we the, the lead car would go ahead to get there faster, and they would scope out for for snipers and look up the stairwells, make sure there's no bombs, and and then there'd be a guy sitting in my apartment with like a automatic weapon loaded, sitting in my living room. Um, it was pretty horrifying and scary, um, and you know the, the, these guys do a lot of a lot of uh, a lot of terrible things. Um, but the one thing that I had going for me, and, and this is, I mean, it's kind of a, a joke, but it, it was very serious, is that in, in Russia, nobody um, 
everything is a conspiracy. No, nothing mm-hmm. is as it seems on the surface. Right. And and so everybody looked at me and saying, there's no way that some guy from the south side of Chicago, American guy, shows up in Russia and takes on the most powerful, dangerous oligarchs in the country on his own volition. Somebody must be standing behind him. This must be a project. And everybody looked at, at the whole pattern and they said, well, okay, Browder does this stuff. And then all of a sudden Putin steps in and, and he attacks the people right afterwards. This must be a, what, how clever of Putin to come up with this weird <laughs> strategy. And, 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 and they were kind of scared of Putin. And so um, uh, like they thought, and I wasn't going to correct them and tell them that, that this is like totally my doing and has nothing to do with him. And so I let them believe that this was some type of Putin project because that that gave me some some protection, this misunderstanding. Um, and 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 so, you know, here I am now sitting here telling the story. So n- nobody got to me. But it was, a, 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 of course, a very scary you know thing to do, an extremely scary thing to do. And everybody was scratching their heads and wondering how I could do it and get away with it. So, so you and Putin's interests appear to be aligned, at least in the beginning in the 90s. Uh, then a few years go by, and suddenly you're declared a national security threat. Tell us a little bit about what that experience was like, uh, not being permitted back into the country and, and denied a visa. So Putin had this problem with the oligarchs. They were stealing power from him, and, and he... he um, you know, and so every time I would be doing this stuff, he would come come in and do you know come down on them. But that wasn't enough for him. He 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 had to solve this problem once and for all. And he came up with with a plan in late 2003 to solve his problem with the oligarchs. And what he did was there was one oligarch in particular who was the richest oligarch. His name was Mikhail Hordakovsky. At the time, he was worth about 20 billion dollars. He was the owner of an oil company called Yukos. And so Putin decided that he was going to win his war with the oligarchs by arresting the richest oligarch. And so Hordakovsky is on his private jet. His jet um, is land, lands in some air, airport in Siberia. And Putin organizes for his private jet to be surrounded by the FSB, which is the successor organization of the KGB. They surround the jet. They arrest him. They put him on a government plane back to Moscow. They put him in jail. And then they put him on trial. In Russia, when you go on trial, there's a 99.7% conviction rate. And so there's no presumption of innocence. And so when you're on trial, they put you in a cage because that's where you're going to be when the trial is over. So they put Mikhail Hordakovsky, the richest man in Russia, on trial in a cage. And they allowed television cameras to come in and film him. Wow. And so imagine you're the 17th richest oligarch in Russia. You're on your yacht. It's parked off the Côte d'Azur in France. You've just finished up with your mistress in the bedroom. You go out to the uh, to the living room. You click on CNN, and you see a guy far smarter, far more powerful, far better than you sitting in a cage. What's your natural reaction going to be? You don't want to sit in that cage. And so one by one by one, these um, oligarchs went to Putin after Hordakovsky was convicted and sentenced to 10 years. And they say to Putin, this is summer of 2004, you know, Vladimir, what do we have to do so we don't sit in the cage? <laughs> and, and Putin says, real simple, 50%. Wow. Not, not 50% for the Russian government or 50% for the presidential administration of Russia, 
50% for Vladimir Putin. And at that moment in time, 2004, Vladimir Putin became the, becomes the richest man in the world. And at that moment in time, all of my activities exposing the oligarchs are no longer exposing his enemies, but exposing his 50% personal interest. And they, they must have struggled to figure out what to, what to do with me, um, but they figured it out. And um, in early November 2005, I was flying back to Moscow from London. I, I was, I've been living in Moscow for 10 years. I was the largest foreign investor in the country. And I get arrested at Sheremetyevo Airport um, by four heavily armed border guards. They take me down to the detention center of the airport. They lock me up overnight. And I'm sitting there uh, cursing myself for having been so stupid for doing this and wondering whether I'm going off to Siberia like Hordakovsky or whether I'm going to be deported. I'm sitting there for 15 hours. And then they finally frog march me back onto a uh, Aeroflot flight, stick me in the middle seat and deport me back to London. And I'll tell you something, I was so, so happy that it was, if you've ever watched that movie Argo, when the sure. take off from Iran, I was so happy that I wasn't being sent off to Siberia. Um, but so I get back to London, um, and um, and and then I, I get a, an official letter from the Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs saying that I've been banned entry into Russia because I was a threat to national security. And, and 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 I was really surprised, actually, because I thought I'd been doing them a favor by exposing all this corruption. But you know, as I figured out, Putin Putin was now the beneficiary of this whole thing. And so, at this point, I was pretty scared because, okay, yes, um, uh, being kicked out is not a great thing if you're specialized in investing in Russia. But you know, when the Russians decide to go after you, they they don't tend to do it mildly. They usually do it with extreme prejudice, and so. I said to myself, where else to do, um, you know, where else am I exposed? And there is two places where I was exposed. I had a bunch of people, a bunch of people who work for me and their family members that they could arrest um, in Russia. And, and I had a hell of a lot of money invested in the country. And so I organized an emergency evacuation of my entire staff, all of the people who work for me and their, and their dependents, and I got them all out and got them all to London. And once I got everybody safely out, um, we then um, organized, uh, we, we quickly and quietly liquidated every last share we held in, in the country. So let's talk a little bit about the raid. Uh, Russian officials, while you're in Paris, decide to raid the remnants of what was Hermitage. You had already essentially wound down operations, removed everybody um, except for one secretary, and, and gotten all of the cash out of out of Russia. Uh, tell us how this progressed. What what was this raid about? Well, so 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 they they they, they seize these documents, the, the stamp seals and certificates for our investment holding companies, which were at this point were empty. So they seize these documents, and and then we discover that the document that the companies no longer belong to us. They had been fraudulently re-registered into the name of a man who had been convicted of manslaughter and let out of jail early. Um, he became the new owner of these of our of our empty investment holding companies, which, and the only way he could have done that it, it was in collusion with the the police. And so, at this point, I, I don't have any money at at stake in Russia because all the money is safely out. But 
I, I, I'm terrified, not from a financial perspective, but from a legal perspective, because I, I know that if the police are working with killers to steal companies, I'll, I'm going to be walking through some airport somewhere and I'm going to be right. arrested in some future date. And so I, I, um, I call up the smartest lawyer I know in Russia, a young man named Sergei Magnitsky. Sergei was at the time 35 years old. He worked for an American law firm. And he was one of these people who could literally do 10 things in the time it takes another lawyer to do one. He's just a genius, hardworking, unbelievably good lawyer. And I say to Sergey, I don't know what's going on here, but I need you to figure it out and I need you to stop it. <clears throat> and so Sergey goes out and he investigates. And he goes and sends letters of request and information documents to all different people. And he goes to registries and he goes to courts. And he goes everywhere. And he comes back and he said, I figured it out. There were two parts of the scam. He said the first part of the scam didn't succeed. The first part of the scam was they wanted to steal all of your money. But because I'd gotten all my money out before they got to us, they didn't get it. He said, however, the second part of their scam did succeed. And what he explained was that <clears throat> after we had liquidated all of our holdings in Russia in the previous year when we got all of our money out. We had a profit of a billion dollars. And on that profit of a billion dollars, we paid to the Russian government $230 million of capital gains tax. And what Sergey had learned through his investigation was that after our companies were stolen, the people who stole our companies went back to the tax authorities on the 23rd of December, 2007. And they said there was a mistake made in the previous year tax filing. Instead of these companies earning a billion dollars, they earned zero, is what they said. And they came up with some complicated way of trying to explain that. And they said as a result of them earning zero, the $230 million of taxes that was paid in the previous year was paid in error, and we'd like that money back. And so on the 23rd of December, 2007, two days before Christmas, they applied for a $230 million fraudulent tax refund. It was the largest tax refund in the history of Russia. They applied for it on the two days before Christmas, and it was approved and paid out the next day on Christmas Eve. And so... Pretty shocking. Uh, well, I mean, if you... So let's just say you overpaid taxes... Um, legitimately by $5,000, you know, you'd be 15 years later and you'd still not got to get that money back from the Russians. You, you, you the don't think you'd get it the next stuff. day, even if it was Christmas Eve? It was like a lovely Christmas present. <laughs> a $230 million, <laughs> a large, nearly a quarter of a billion dollars paid out on a fraud in one day on Christmas Eve. So Sergey and I were looking at this, and this was just a monumental discovery, and we... And we said to each other, this couldn't possibly be authorized because this wasn't, this wasn't my money that was being stolen. This was the Russian government's money being stolen. And we, and we, we thought, you know, Putin, he might be a nasty guy, but he's, he's a nationalist. He's a patriot. He, this, is his, uh, this is his own money that's being stolen. He couldn't have authorized this. And so we figured that the best way of dealing with it is to bring it to the attention of the highest authorities in Russia, and so we wrote criminal complaints to the head of the uh, general, to the general prosecutor of Russia, to the head of the Russian State Investigative Committee, to the 
head of the Internal Affairs Department of the Interior Ministry. I then went to the um, uh, newspapers, to the radio, television, telling the story of what had happened. And then Sergei went and gave formal testimony to the Russian State Investigative Committee, which is their FBI. And we sat back and we waited for the good guys to get the bad guys. Well, it turns out that in Vladimir Putin's Russia, there are no good guys. <laughs> Five weeks after Sergei testified against the officials, these um, uh, cops and so on, who did the raid, the same people he testified against came to his home on the 24th of November, 2008, and arrested him. They put him in pretrial detention, where he was then tortured to withdraw his testimony. They put him in cells with uh, 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. Uh, they put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow, so he nearly froze to death. They put him in cells with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. They moved him from cell to cell to cell. And the purpose of all this um, was, was to get him to withdraw his testimony against these corrupt police officers. And they wanted to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million and he did so in my instruction. And Sergey, he looked to them like just like a soft guy. He, he, here's a guy who, you know, wears a gray suit and a white shirt and a red tie and goes to a fancy American law firm and buys Starbucks coffee in the morning. You know, a week of this and he'll buckle. But what they, they completely misunderstood Sergei Magnitsky. Sergei was this man of unbelievable principle and integrity. And for him, the idea of perjuring himself and bearing false witness was more, more painful than the physical pain they were subjecting him to, and he just refused. And as a result of, of um, his refusal, they just upped, upped and upped the uh, pressure and the torture. And after about six months of this, his health started to deteriorate. He started to develop terrible pains in his stomach, couldn't eat, he lost 40 pounds, and he eventually went to the prison doctor, and they diagnosed him as having uh, pancreatitis and gallstones and um, needing an operation, which was scheduled for the 1st of August, 2009. Um, a week before the operation, he, he, um, uh, the, 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 the bad guys come to him again, again demand him to sign the false confession, again he refuses, and in retaliation, they move him from the prison where he was, where they, which had this medical facility, to a maximum security prison um, in Moscow called Butyrka. And Butyrka is considered to be one of the most horrible prisons in Russia. It's like a medieval prison. But, but, but worse than that for Sergei is that there was um, no medical facilities there. And at Butyrka, his health completely broke down. He went into a terrible downward spiral, constant agonizing pain, and all medical attention was refused. He and his lawyers wrote 20 different desperate requests to every different branch of the criminal justice system begging for medical attention. And every different letter was either ignored or denied in writing by so many different parts of the criminal justice system. Things got worse and worse, and on November 16, 2009, Sergei went into critical condition. On that night, the, the Butyrka authorities didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore, so they put him in an ambulance and sent him to another prison across town that had a medical uh, wing. 
when he gets to the new prison, instead of putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell. They chain him to a bed. And then eight riot guards with rubber batons come into the cell and beat Sergei Magnitsky to death. He was 37 years old. That was November 16th, 2009, a little more than 12 and a half years ago. He left a wife and two children, and he was killed. Unbelievable. It was the most unbelievable, horrifying, traumatizing, shocking, horrific thing I've ever had anything to do with in my life. The guy who worked for me was killed because he worked for me. He was effectively killed as my proxy. And when I was finally able to clear the fog of hysteria and heartbreak and shock, I think clearly I made a vow to his memory, to his family, and to myself that I was going to put aside everything else I was doing in my life. And I was going to devote all of my time all of my resources and all of my energies going after the bastards that killed him to make sure they face justice. At the last 12 and a half years, that's what I've been doing. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. So you had previously discussed um, how uh, effectively uh, the Russian government had had Sergei beaten to death in their custody. Uh, at this point, you decide you want um, you want payback. You want to make the people who did this pay. Tell us how the idea of the Magnitsky Act came about, and what was it like shepherding that through Congress. So. <clears throat> After Sergei was killed, I said to myself, well, well, how do we get justice? And Sergei had done something unique when he was in jail, which is that he wrote everything down that happened to him. Every, every time they did something bad to him, he wrote a criminal complaint about who did it, what they did, where they did it, what law was violated, when they did it. And that was his way of dealing with the adversity of being in jail. And so over the course of 358 days in detention, he had written 450 complaints documenting his mistreatment. 
And once a month or so, he would write these complaints out. Once a month or so, he would hand them to his lawyer. His lawyer would then file them, and we would get copies. And although none of these complaints were ever acted on, we because we had copies, we had the most doc, well-documented, granular, detailed, first-hand account of human rights abuse that's ever come out of the Russian system. And because these were so articulately written, um, they made a horrifying case for, you know, Russia was like, this was, this was not, nobody could imagine that this was the Russia, you know, R- Russia of the year of 2009. They thought this was like 1938 during Stalin when they read these letters and complaints. And we thought that that would be enough to at least have them throw some of the low-level people under the bus. But I was completely wrong. Instead of prosecuting anybody, Vladimir Putin got personally involved. He circled the wagons. He made public statements that nobody had done anything wrong. He exonerated every single individual. Some of the most complicit people even received state honors and and promotions. And in the most unbelievable miscarriage of justice, three years after they murdered Sergei Magnitsky, they put him on trial in the first ever trial against a dead man in the history of Russia. They put me on trial as his co-defendant. We were both found guilty. They couldn't do anything more to Sergei than they had already done of killing him. Um, they sentenced me to nine years in absentia. It became obvious well before that that, this, that, that we weren't going to succeed in getting justice in Russia. So we said, well, how do we get justice outside of Russia? And this is when I came up with an idea, which is that the people who killed Sergei didn't kill him for ideological or religious reasons, as many things have happened in the past. They killed him for money. They killed him very simply for $230 million. And the people who stole that $230 million don't keep that money in Russia. Because as easily as they stole it, it could be stolen from them. They keep that money in America, in the, in the UK. They buy fancy apartments in London. They buy houses in South Beach and Miami. Uh, they buy uh, villas on the, on the front line in Saint-Tropez. And they send their kids to Swiss boarding school and their girlfriend, girlfriends on shopping trips to Milan. And so... We, 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 it's, it would be very difficult to prosecute somebody for, for torture and murder in the West um, for a crime that was committed in Russia, but we certainly don't have to let them travel to the West, or we can, certainly don't have to let them use our banks in the West. We can freeze their assets in the West. And so that's when I came up with this idea of freezing their assets and banning their visas. And so I took this idea to Washington, and I met two senators. I met Senator Benjamin Cardin, who was a Democrat from Maryland, and Senator John McCain, a Republican from Arizona. And I shared this story, which I've just shared with you now. And I said, can we freeze their assets and ban their visas? And these two senators were so moved by the story, they said, yes, we can. That's what we do here in Congress. We can make a law. And they made something called the Magnitsky Act. And so they put this idea of the Magnitsky Act on the books. And it was originally just to go after the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky. 
<laughs> but as soon as other other um, people, victims, had heard of this story, they, the, the phones in these two senators' offices started lighting up with calls from Moscow and other parts of Russia saying, you found the Achilles heel of the Putin regime. This is what they do. They, they commit terrible crimes in Russia and they keep their money in the West. Can you possibly... Um, sanction the people who killed my husband, my brother, my sister, my aunt. And after about a dozen of these calls, these two senators realized they are they were under something much bigger than just one case. And so they added 65 words to the law to include all human rights abusers in Russia, not just the people who killed Magnitsky. And all of a sudden, all sorts of victims uh, fanned out across Capitol Hill telling their stories. I was tra- telling Sergei's story, and in November of 2012, it went for a vote in the Senate, and it passed 92 to 4. The Magnitsky Act passed 92 to 4. In the House of Representatives, it passed with 89%. Um, and on December 14, 2012, President Obama signed the Magnitsky Act into a federal law, and Vladimir Putin went out of his mind. He got so angry that in retaliation, he banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. And that, that may sound bad, but it's actually much worse than it sounds, because the orphans that the Russians put up for adoption were the unhealthy ones, the, the ones with, with Down syndrome, with fetal alcohol syndrome, with HIV, with all sorts of other terrible things. And Americans would come with open hearts and open arms and take these sick children back to America and nurse them to health. And in Russia, the orphanages didn't have the resources, and these kids would die. And so basically, Putin was sentencing his own orphans to death as a way of retaliating against the Magnitsky Act. He then made it his single largest foreign policy priority to try to repeal the Magnitsky Act. And and he um, he even went so far as to sending um, his own representative a female lawyer named Natalia Veselnitskaya uh, to Trump Tower before, after Trump was nominated before before he was elected president, 2016, June 9th, 2016, with a specific request, one just one simple request that if he becomes president, he should repeal the Magnitsky Act. Now, I'm happy to say that uh, it didn't work, that no Magnitsky Act has ever been repealed. In fact, it was not just not repealed, but it was broadened. The Magnitsky Act in 2016 became the Global Magnitsky Act, which doesn't just go after the people who do terrible things in Russia, but in China and Iran and Venezuela and all other countries. The Magnitsky Act now exists not just in the United States. We got it passed in Canada in 2017, in the UK in 2018, in the European Union in 2020, in Australia in 2021. There are now 34 countries that have Magnitsky Acts around the world. And this is actually the um, the tool, the template, which is being used to go after uh, all the bad guys in Putin's regime that are involved in the war in Ukraine. So let's so let's put I, some flesh on those bones a little bit and and talk about the dollar amounts involved. So so Sir, Sergey discovered a two hundred and thirty million dollar tax fraud, and then courtesy of investigative journalism like the Panama Papers and a number of other items. Um, just one bank alone, Dansky Bank in uh, Scandinavia, was discovered to have laundered 
234 billion, not million, billion in in Russian money. What do you think the total amount of dirty, corrupt, stolen money uh, out of Russia adds up to that's been laundered through Western banks? Well, so so yeah, so we so one of the big things that after the Magnitsky Act was passed was to figure out where where all the money was, and so we we that became like my primary life mission was to figure it out. And I had a bunch of people working for me and we collaborated with a lot of these journalists and, um, and we ended up getting a lot of information in different countries. And, and, and what we discovered was that um, in order to get the money out of Russia, they never sent it directly from Russia to like buy an apartment in London or France because the banks in London and France would be suspicious. And so what they did was they found these countries that were members of the European Union, um, but were st- sort of not up to par with the European Union as far as you know honesty and laws, and and the um, uh, the countries that were really sort of fit that category were these three countries: the Baltics, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, and Cyprus. And as we started digging and digging and pulling at threads and getting more data and leaks and, and working with journalists, we discovered that 200 million of the 230 million that, um, uh, that, that was stolen had all gone to one bank, the Estonian branch of Dansky Bank, a Danish bank, had all gone through this one branch. And we had all this great data. And these journalists that we were working that we knew in in Denmark were really interested in, in the data we had because it identified the names of the holding companies and the, the account numbers and all this kind of stuff because they had a huge database themselves called the Russian laundromat database <laughs> but they couldn't make sense of the database but they had they could if if they could take our 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 analysis of the two hundred million so they 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 get our analysis they they get our all of our analysis and they compare it to this big sort of unstructured database they have, this Russian laundromat, and they come back and say, actually, it wasn't 200 million, it was eight and a half billion that was laundered through this bank. So they write the story, and it was just like a blockbuster story, and it was a particular blockbuster story because Denmark is supposed to be like this honest country. If you look at the Transparency International Index, it's supposed to be the second most honest country in the world after New Zealand. And so here you've got this Danish bank, the major bank in Denmark, laundering eight and a half billion of dirty Russian money. And at this point, the the Dane, the Dane, the, the CEO of the bank, he can't just sit back and do nothing. And so he orders uh, a, a, a like full external investigation of everything that went on in this bank, and they bring in accounting firms and law firms and data analytic firms and so on. And they finish their analysis, and they discover. It wasn't just eight and a half billion, as you mentioned. It was two hundred and thirty-two billion of money was laundered through this bank. And so, here I am. I'm looking at this thing and I'm saying, okay, this is just one Danish bank that's laundered two hundred thirty-two billion. If if we could lift the hood on Raiffeisen Bank in Vienna, on Deutsche Bank, on UBS, and Credit Suisse, I think that number you could multiply that number by four easily and you'd still be on the low end. And so I estimate that a trillion dollars of money has been stolen out of Russia by Putin and the thousand people around him 
and laundered into the West. A trillion dollars, a thousand billion dollars. So let's talk a little bit about that. You know, you know, we've we've taken to calling London London stand because it's been so blatant. You mentioned places like Miami and, and San Tropez. Uh, how, how was this just allowed? Why, why were Russians allowed to act with such impunity in the West? Well, the reason that Russians have been allowed to act with such impunity is because so many so many people are getting um, rich off of this. There's so many bankers. I, I think that like Dansky Bank Estonian branch had a 400% return on equity. <laughs> so, um, but so many people are getting so rich out of doing this that that they're and these are not just nobodies. These are like highly placed influential people. And in London, the, the Russians are, sp- are were sprinkling this money around like confetti. Like every, you know, all lawyers were getting this money and the, and the bankers and accounting firms and, and concierges and real estate agents. And, and these were all people who had friends in high places. And as a result of this, and this, is, this has been a huge problem for the world, everybody was financially incentivized to look the other way when Putin was doing terrible things at every step of the way. Let's get a little more explicit with some of that. In, in, in freezing order, you specifically name names and call certain people Putin's U.S. enablers. You, you mention a couple of attorneys by name, John Moscow and Mark Simrot, uh, former Wall Street Journal reporter Glenn Simpson, even Congressman Dana Rohrbeck. What it it has to be more than just money, or or am I making it too complicated? Is it just that simple? These folks are all for sale. Well, let me tell you the story of John Moscow because it's one of the most shocking stories. And such a great name! It's it's wild. Yeah, exactly. It's like it's straight out of Central Casting. This guy. So I'm looking around as after Sergey's murder. I'm looking around for for um, somebody to help me find the money. And I ask everybody I know who's the best like anti money laundering lawyer in the world, and like four people tell me go to this guy John Moscow, and I had to laugh like wow, John Moscow. So I so I go to this guy John Moscow. He's a former New York DA who was responsible for prosecuting all these big money laundering cases in New York, and he's the real deal. This guy is like you know he went into private practice after after his life as a prosecutor. And he knows his way around all the different tools of finding dirty money. And he gave us a whole bunch of, uh, we hired him, we paid him a bunch of money, and he gave us all sorts of like uh, good ideas and, and helped us draft all these subpoenas and all this interesting stuff. And then one day, he just like, poof, disappears into, into the ether, stops returning my calls, and, and effectively just stops working for us. Anyways, I thought that was pretty weird, but, you know, I've, I've encountered so much horribleness in my life that's hardly the worst horribleness and we found some other lawyers and took all of john moscow's ideas and implemented them and we found the money in new york and and we found a bunch of money going to purchase luxury apartments in new york 20 million dollars worth of luxury apartments coming and and which was trade which was linked to, to the um to this fraud that, that sergey magnitsky was killed over so i take this to the um, new york authorities and they pass it up to the federal authorities and the U.S. government, the Department of Justice, issues a federal forfeiture order over all these properties. And, and when you read the complaint, it's just like, you know, just the most damning thing you've ever seen. And 
I couldn't imagine that, that, that anyone would ever show up to try to defend it. I thought the Russians would just like slither into the slither away and, <laughs> and just let their apartments get seized. But when, uh, as soon as the government files it, the next day, um, a lawyer appears on behalf of the Russian uh, culprits. Um, who is the lawyer? John Moscow. So the lawyer who's, who, my lawyer, the guy, I'm the victim. Um, well, Sergey is the victim. I'm, I'm the victim. We're the victims. Um, the lawyer for the victim um, switches sides and becomes the lawyer for the alleged perpetrator. Um, so, uh, the, I mean, I'm not a, I didn't go to law school. I went to business school, but I, I know that you can't do that. Lawyers can't switch sides. I mean, that's absurd. And, um, uh, and, and I should point out that, that, that uh, he didn't just do this by himself. He did this with, as you mentioned, another lawyer named Mark Simrot. And it wasn't like they were just like two bucket shop lawyers working out of a shopping mall. They were working for Baker Hostetler. This is one of the most prestigious law firms in America. They have like thousands of lawyers. They, they like, represent Microsoft and Ford Motor and all sorts of other prestigious companies. And this firm basically went from, from uh, working for, for you know, the, the, the agents of the Russian government and, um, uh, and switching sides. And the first thing he did when he switched sides is he then issues a subpoena against me looking, demanding all of my personal security details, all of my travel information, all the information about my colleagues and, and their families. I mean, just shockingly, you know, and, what, and, and where is this information going to go? It's going to go to his Russian client who's an agent of the Russian government. Right. To kill me. Unbelievable. Um, and uh, and Baker Hosteller, let me just say that a couple more. Baker Hosteller, major American law firm, just working, you know, effectively working as an arm of, of the Russian intelligence services. Um in America, and you say, why are they doing it? They're doing it for money, plain and simple, for tens of millions of dollars. You you filed um, a number of, of motions to have them disqualified. You had kind of an old, doddering, 80-something-year-old federal judge uh, who really didn't understand the case. How did you ultimately get them kicked off the case uh I, I was fascinated by that in, in freezing order that they, they had previously made some motions saying this has nothing to do with Browder. We didn't represent him. We This is a completely different entity. And, and then they kind of uh, shot themselves in the foot. Tell us about that. So, so um, the first thing we did was when this happened, I said, well, this is not right. This is not legal. We should. We, so we filed a motion to have them disqualified because it was a conflict of interest. And I mean, it just seems like plain as day. And if you were to survey, you know, a hundred legal professionals, a hundred of them would say this is a conflict of interest. So we show up, and I think it's just a no-brainer. It's a quick, quick and simple procedure, and we'll get rid of him, and 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 no longer be at risk of him, you know, uh, knowing all of my personal details and being able to share them with the Russian government. And so we file it, and we we got the most unlucky draw you could ever get in the history of draws in the court. And we get this judge, his name is Judge uh, Thomas Grisset. And this Grisset, um, at the time, was 83 years old. And, um, and he had uh, long ago lost his, you know, he was just, you know, old age, does terrible things to people. And, and I know it from my own family, my own father, when he got really old. My father was a genius mathematician. 
one of the top mathematicians in the world, and things you know weren't so great when when he got into his mid eighties. And this guy, you know, there's no man, mandatory retirement age for a federal judge, and we got in front of this guy, and he, he and he didn't understand. He just didn't understand that there was a conflict of interest, and and he was not only that, he was sort of uh, angry with me for sort of delaying the case by making this motion, and he granted the subpoena in full, and basically, uh, uh, you know. Ordered me to hand over all of my information to the, effectively to the Russian government, um, which would have gotten me or people close to me killed. And and we went through hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars of legal expenses fighting this thing off. And finally, we 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 sort of did a hail mary and we appealed it. There's a special type of legal challenge you can do called a writ of mandamus, which, which almost never succeeds, where you're basically saying that the judge has gone off the reservation. And we filed, and, and like these things never succeed. But we filed it, and and we went again, and we went to the appeals court, and the judges in the appeals court said this is the most unbelievable thing they've ever seen, and um, they they disqualified John Moscow and Baker Hostetler, um, and and interestingly, the judge was was sort of quietly put put out to pasture, um, and we got rid of them, or so we thought. And then we discovered after the whole case was over, when the, when, when the case finally came to fruition, the, the Russians paid the U.S. government $6 million instead of going to trial. And then we discovered afterwards that even after John Moscow and Baker Hofstetler were disqualified, they continued to secretly work for the Russians. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do. That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Now, if you're working for the Russians, um, a foreign entity, uh, don't you have to register as a lobbyist? Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Well, so what was interesting was they weren't just doing this case. They were running all around Washington, Baker Hosteller, and they also hired a guy named Glenn Simpson, who is the uh, author of, of the Trump dossier. So, well, so they hired Glenn Simpson to basically run a smear campaign against me and the Magnitsky Act in Washington as we were lobbying for the Global Magnitsky Act to be passed in the summer of 2016. And so you've got this guy, Mark Simrot, who was going around briefing members of Congress saying that Magnitsky was a crook, Bill Browder's a crook, don't do the Magnitsky Act, don't name it after Magnitsky, don't do it. Glenn Simpson was, was, was trying to um, 
uh, get journalists to write these articles. He was feeding in misinformation and, and nonsense to, uh, to different journalists and desperately trying to um, create this, this appearance that, that Putin was good and me and Sergei Magnitsky were bad and the Magnitsky Act was something wrong and terrible. And, and when you do that, and, and so they, they came up with this thing a long time ago during, during the Second World War when the Nazis were doing similar types of stuff. They came up with a law called the Foreign Agent Registration Act in Washington. And the Foreign Agent, Agent Registration Act says that if somebody is, is working for a foreign government or an or entity connected to a foreign government, they have to declare, do a public declaration and with the Department of Justice to say that they're working for, as a foreign agent for Russian or for a foreign government. And so this is a clear example when Mark Simrod from Baker Hostetler and Glenn Simpson should have been doing that. And why, why is it important? Because then you understand that this is the Russian government's agenda. And then all sorts of people would say, okay, well, actually, I'm not so interested in getting involved in this thing. But they, 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 they didn't do that. And so they violated the Foreign Agent Registration Act um, by just basically running roughshod over the whole thing. Um, we made a complaint to the Department of Justice. Um, and, and unfortunately, to this day, there has not been a prosecution in this case. That's shocking. That that's absolutely shocking. So so last question in this segment has to be given all this money that's been laundered not just through Danske Bank but all these western banks that you are estimating conservatively at a trillion dollars. What is Vladimir Putin's net worth? Is he the wealthiest person in the world? No question. Vladimir Putin is the wealthiest person in the world by by a huge amount. Um, I, I haven't done the calculations recently, but like, you know, five, six years ago, I think he was worth more than $200 billion. That number has, has probably multiplied by, by now. He's, he's an extremely rich man. And, and his wealth, I believe, is, is the source of all the problems that we're facing today. The fact that he's so rich, he's stolen so much money from people. He bought so many yachts and villas and all this kind of stuff. Um, and that's all money that should have been spent on healthcare and education and all the stuff that people in, in Russia deserve. And it's been stolen by him and, and his cronies. And I believe, and I think that if you were to, to poll anybody who really understands Russia, Alexei Navalny, the guy in jail, Michael Hordakovsky, the guy I was telling you about who spent 10 years in jail, or any of these other Russian dissidents, Gary Kasparov, the former chess champion, any and every one of them will tell you that, that the reason why Putin has started this war in Ukraine is that he was worried about people in Russia rising up against him eventually because they were so angry at, at the corruption and all the money that's been stolen, and they needed to create a foreign enemy. And that's what this war is about. It's not about the greater Russian empire or NATO. It's about Putin being a, a corrupt, uh, sick, corrupt man who needed to create a, a major distraction so that the people in Russia didn't rise up against him. And, the, and it succeeded. The, the war in Ukraine has, has, has led to an 83% of, uh, enthusiastic approval rating of Vladimir Putin. So let's, let's talk a little bit about this invasion of Ukraine, which you've described as really a wag the dog you know, sort of situation. Uh, he, Putin is trying to distract the Russian populace from the state of their economy and all the corruption that's taking place. Tell us your thoughts about what's going on now. 
So, so that Putin has to um, uh, divert the anger that Russian people have for the, the, that, that you can't get a doctor to, to prescribe medicine. You, your children aren't being educated. The potholes in the roads aren't being filled. He has to distract from that anger because he knows that one day it's like, you know, tinder in a forest, like all dry leaves, that it all takes is one match to set it on fire. And, you know, he can put 10 people in jail. He can put 100 people in jail. He can put 1,000 people in jail. But if a million people mark up, march on Red Square, he's finished. And he's so scared of that. And he's created such a pressure cooker type of situation by stealing all this money over such a long period of time that he knows that that's going to, that, 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 that kind of thing is going to come for him at some point. And, and that's why he started this war. And, and, and so it's really important to understand this because as everybody is looking at this terrible war in Ukraine and all the tragedy and all the implications in the West, everybody is desperate for this thing to end. And a lot of people, a lot of very learned people in Washington and other in Berlin and London are all looking at this thing and saying, well, you know, if we give him this or we give him that, then maybe he'll stop. And first of all, appeasement never works. But beyond that, huh. it, that, that, that shows that, that a fundamental misunderstanding, which is that, that he, it's not about NATO. It's not about some, wanting some piece of Ukraine. It's about wanting to be at war so that he can stay in power. So the end game for him is being at war. And if that's the case... There's nothing we can offer him, even if we, if, even if we wanted to be um, appeasers. And, and, and a lot of people are saying this war is going badly for him, and it is going badly. We can see the military defeats and the number of dead Russian soldiers and, the, and all the terror and the, the fact that he didn't succeed in getting to Kiev and, and all this kind of stuff. But the one thing that's going really well for Putin is that he doesn't have to worry about being overthrown in Russia. And that's a very happy place for him to be, that he, he can sit there confidently know that he's securely in power. And, 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 and so as we're all sitting here thinking, oh, that he must be really upset and the oligarchs are upset. Well, no, he's pretty happy right now because at least he knows he's not going to be overthrown. Bill, just unbelievable, incredible stuff. You, you really are, are, are doing um, God's work. It, it, it's just the, the story you tell in Red Notice is just astonishing. It, it reads like a, a spy thriller. Um, I'm, I'm very pleased that you managed to get so much legislation passed in the United States and, and around the world. And, and good luck with your campaign. Uh, we're rooting for you. We really, it, it's really just an amazing set of um, achievements that you've, you've completed under the most trying possible uh, conditions. And, and all of the global recognition and human rights awards that that you've um garnered are 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 well deserved and 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 thank you for all the things you're doing thank you if you enjoyed hearing this conversation uh be sure and check out all of our previous 400 or so uh interviews you can find those wherever you get your favorite podcasts itunes spotify google acast wherever we love your comments feedback and suggestions write to us at mibpodcast at bloomberg.net you can sign up for my daily reading list at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. 
I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps put these conversations together each week. John Wasserman is my audio engineer. Atika Valbrun is my project manager. Paris Wald is my producer. Sean Russo is my researcher. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.